Hello again listeners and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this is someone who got in touch with me to express his desire to come on the pod after hearing the episode I did with big friend of the pod, Shane Terrier. He is someone who is in the East London community, um, someone I have probably have no idea how we first met, but has been on his own mental health journey like everyone else. Maybe for our mutual friends, they'll be seeing a different side to my special guest for the first time. If you happen to know him in our area, you'll tend to spot him by the way of his rather large noggin. So I am delighted to be welcoming Tim Gibson onto the Just Check pod. Tim works as a surface level service level coordinator and has only in the last year really returned to the UK after working in France for two years across a range of jobs, including a teaching assistant and as an English language tutor. Tim, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. First off, how are you and how are you coping with the lockdown and, and general situation we're in the moment at time of recording, pal? All right, mate. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Well, I mean, it's it's obviously a very strange time for everybody. Like, it just is. There's no getting away from it. At the moment, I'm at my parents' house trying to enjoy working from home and also trying not to go mad with only leaving the house once a day. It's definitely a challenge for everybody, especially being back with my family. But I'm getting used to it, Fred, I would say. But it's not, it's not, it's very much not normal, isn't it? Mm, I, I, I completely agree, mate. I think it's, um, I think it's one of those things we just have to sort of try and take the positives out of the negatives, really. Um, It's why I'm doing so many podcasts right now. So so there we go. Um, I know you're a a, a busy man when it comes to it most of the time. So shall we crack on and get started? Yes, please. Let's get straight into it, Tim, and talk about your journey. So first of all, just tell me a bit about your early life, your teenage years, where you grew up. And whether looking back, you had any sort of early mental health experiences that you could pinpoint? Um, so I was born in Bow in East London, but then we moved out to Wanstead when I was eight. Um, so I went to Wanstead High, obviously where I met, indirectly met you and a lot of our mutual friends. Um, I think going to Wanstead was a really, it, it, on the whole, Fred, it was a really good experience because you meet you meet a lot of different people from all around the place at that school. And it was like, mm. it was one of the things I noticed when I got to uni was that not everybody had had the same kind of, you know, diverse multicultural upbringing that, that I had had. Mm. Um, I would say I had, I was, I'd say I was okay at school in terms of like making friends and things. I wasn't like number one social butterfly, but also I wasn't like down at the bottom, you know, scrabbling around for people. I think mm. that managed to find like a, a pretty cool equilibrium between like, uh well i think fred a bit like you i think because i like football helped a lot like you can kind of you can Mm. jump into a lot of different conversations with people if you like sports but also you know you can play video games and jump into that kind of circle as well there was a point i reckon when i was about probably about year 10 or year 11 when like the work started to become like too hard and i think i was like struggling a little bit with that i remember speaking to my parents about it quite a lot when i was in GCSEs and then into year 12 i think that like 
I think it probably affected my mental health as a teenager, I would say, just in that kind of sense of, you know, when you're a teenager, you kind of think everyone's against you, that kind of thing. Mm. It was that it was that kind of um, experience of just, oh, I worked too hard, I can't bother this, oh, you know, like that, I think. And then I didn't do very well in my AS levels, I remember. And so I, in general, it was fine, Fred. Like, in general, I think I coped pretty well, and I think most of the stuff that I went through was kind of like general teenager kind of growing pains. But I do remember there being certain moments when I was thinking that everything was getting on top of me and um, that was quite hard. And I think that's mm. probably continued in, in, to a reasonable degree into my adult life. But um, once I kind of realized, once I got into year 13 and I realized, I kind of like got my head down a little bit in terms of the work, you know, I think there comes a moment when for everybody when they have, when almost like a, there's like a switch that flicks in your head and you go, you want to do well, at you, if you want to go to uni, if you want to do well, you need to concentrate for this six-month period. And fortunately, I managed to do that, I guess. Mm. Uh, you, you you speak there, Tim, about not having any or well, too many sort of traumatic experiences at school. What, you know, who's the Tim that we meet at this point? Is it someone who's fairly okay with himself uh, from a mental perspective? Or, or was there, were you still tr- sort of figuring yourself out, in that? if that makes sense? It's a good question. I was probably still figuring myself out. I would say I was I was making quite a lot of effort to um to try and be friends with people. You know, I think I've I've always been someone that quite enjoys like sort of contact with other people and stuff. And I think I would like try my best to try and be as sociable as possible. But I also think that you probably I probably had quite um sort of uh quite what's the word I'm looking for? Had quite like basic friendships with people, I guess, with people who probably right. aren't weren't really that important. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. you have these kind of, like, um, just on one level kind of friendships. With Acquaintances. Acquaintances, yeah. Which yeah. I guess is probably good because, like, it does give you some, it does, at that age, it does give you somebody to talk to. But also, it's not someone you're going to, like, you know, sit down and <clears throat> have a deep sort of conversation about, you know, stuff like the work being too hard or stuff like growing up and things. So, mm. I think that was, I think I was, I think I was okay. I think I was probably, you know, in control of everything for, in terms of, like, my, mental health at that age I think I was in general kind of control I had moments definitely where it was kind of like in danger of kind of you know spiraling out of control like if someone says something wrong or if someone you know if I had this extra bit of work that I hadn't done or if like you know building up to an exam or something I think everybody gets the, that kind of quite nervous mindset especially when you're a teenager for it. like can you imagine when you're like 16 or 17 mm. you know every, everything seems like it's kind of mounting up on top of you but I think I was in socially. I was I was okay. I wasn't like top mm. of the class, but I was like pretty good. Did you Did you ever feel like you at, at the time you missed having like that that person or or that group that you could have those conversations about when you were if you were struggling, or or did you enjoy the fact that you could maybe internalize them, or maybe or, or maybe sort of deal with them yourself? Would that, Would that be fair to say? Probably a mixture of the two. You know, I think when you're a I think it's, it, let's be honest, Fred, it's probably to do with being a boy, isn't it? Especially a teenage boy. Mm. You can't exactly, mm. like, sit around with your, well, I couldn't anyway, I can only speak for myself, but you can't exactly sit around with your mates and sort of talk about you maybe not feeling that good or, you know, you, especially when you're, like, 15, 16. I think once we got into sixth form, we got a bit better at that, but, like, certainly when you're, like, a, you know, still trying to impress people and, you know, trying to seem cool and stuff. I think it's quite hard to sit down and go, oh, actually, sorry, that's but you know, works really hard building up a little bit, and you know, I've got this person getting on at me, that person getting on at me. Um, I think that was 
I think that would be true. I think I probably could have done with someone kind of to just kind of reach out and kind of almost like plan my life with, you know, kind of go, right, you need to do this here, this here, this here. This is the most important. Prioritizing the things, something that I'm going to talk about a bit and talk about work is like putting everything in a list of priorities, you know. I think it could have done that. And then in terms of internalizing it, I've always kind of wondered about this actually, Fred, is that like, I don't know whether internalizing something is a good thing or not. I'm assuming, I'm thinking it's not a good thing because you want to, because if it's a problem is only being dealt with by yourself, it's, you, it's not really, it's much better to have more than one person dealing with it. I would say I internalize a fair amount of the pressure of school. Um, and I probably still internalize things today, but well, yeah. I, I think mm. having someone there who you can like, who can relate to you and who you can speak to is much better than keeping it in yourself, especially when you're a teenager. I completely agree with you what you said there, Tim, and about especially about sort of a problem, a problem shared is a problem halved. Building up to um, university now, did you feel quite an immense amount of pressure to to get in, and and did you feel at the time that I guess like many of us did that in our area especially that university was sort of the be all and end all? Yes. Very much so, yes. I think I, I, I remember it. Do you, I remember it being becoming clear, even around the time we did GCSEs, it was like, I think I can't remember exactly when the uni process starts. I guess it's the end of year 12 or start of year 13. But you, it was like, yeah, you need to get this done. It was sort of, it was for everything, really. Because I think it, one is peer pressure, because all of your mates are applying. And we had a couple of people in my friendship group who had interviews at Oxford and Cambridge. And that's when you really kind of start to, you know, look at them and go, oh, my God, right, OK, so they're going to be, you know, not four years and you're going to be where? You know? And also, I think from I don't think I had pressure from my parents, but I think my parents kind of expected me to get into some sort of university. They, my parents both went to uni um back in the day they were the first people in their family to go so and i think they saw the benefits of it in their lives it was it was something that was really important to them so yeah it did it really did feel like really really important i remember thinking i do distinctly remember thinking in year 13 what well, if you don't get in like what are you going to do with yourself you know like mm. you're gonna have you know you, i didn't make a plan but if i didn't get in i remember being really like um uh worried i would say i remember being really sort of concerned yeah i would say anxious as well i remember being really like you know what what will you actually do if you don't get in and then i remember i think that kind of drove me to kind of work a bit harder um Mm. especially in the second half of year 13 i remember that do you know what i mean you can kind of harness that energy in a good way not not always Mm. but in certain situations you can you can kind of go you've got this pressure of not getting in why don't you divert that pressure into you know, working harder. Obviously, I can't. That not everybody can do that, and not everybody can do that in every situation. I understand, but in that moment, it was like you you need to do. It. So I, well, I remember I went to the yeah, yeah, I remember I went to the open day for Leeds, and I was like, right, I think you want to go here. If you work hard for X amount of months, you can probably get in. But yeah, I remember I remember having like quite a lot of like sleepless nights in year thirteen about what happens if you didn't get in. Mm. I think I I agree, and I think I think I I had this I had the same. Yeah, did you have the same thing? I, yeah, I had the same, mate. Oh, hundred percent. And also, like, I hadn't planned for three years that I wouldn't go to uni if I didn't get in. I didn't yeah. have any job experience, so like, how was I? Where was I going to start? I didn't know what I wanted to do as a job. So I think I think as a you know a lot of people, a lot of kids probably didn't know what they wanted to do. So I think if you didn't get in and you didn't have 
that safety net of either like a parent or someone you could join like a firm mm, right yeah, yeah. Way up like you were completely you you know you felt you felt anyway like you were screwed yeah I, um yeah i can definitely empathize with the wanting to uh, prove something to your teachers i definitely remember having that feeling and um yeah it i, I was exactly i'm glad you feel the same way I, I remember i remember at the time just the enormous amount of like pressure on us to kind of you know, I think it was, I think it's to do with, I think it, part of it's to do with proving people wrong, but also part of it's the expectation that's put on you. And I have my younger sister who's always, my younger sister's a, she's cleverer than I, she's better at school than I was, like a little bit. So she was always going to get in. And I was, part of it's wanting to prove like your family wrong as well. Your family, you kind of go, yeah. right, you know, I promise you I'm clever, I'm going to get in here. And I remember, I'll tell you exactly where I was. I was sitting in the armchair in my living room when I went on UCAS on results day and being like, right, there you go, University of Leeds confirmed. And I, that was a good day in my life, Fred. That was, it, you know what I was going to say? The overriding emotion that I had that day wasn't like happiness. It was, it was relief, isn't it? This, it? Speaks to your question. It was relief, definitely. It was, which is probably yeah, a bad thing. Relief. I think on reflection, it's probably yeah. a bad thing because like, you want to be happy when actually you're kind of more like relieved that you, you don't have to have that awkward conversation with your parents and then have to get on the phone to clear and like some of my friends and stuff. I, I remember like the walking, walking across the park, walking to school, being like. Oh, this is like a big weight off my mind and you get to enjoy the summer as well um mm. which was a big thing for us because we had the we had the olympics that summer as well so it was like right pressure's off enjoy the olympics then go off to uni yeah 100 percent. um we get to university now tim now first of all did you feel prepared for it at all and you know tell me what that first year was like for you did you adjust straight away or, or, or were there times where you struggled you know how did you how did you grow as a person and who's the tim we meet at this point um, <laughs> when I was on the car and, and the way up the M1, so I went to Leeds, obviously, for anyone that doesn't know. Um, when I was in the car on the way up, I definitely felt prepared for it. I read a lot of book, I read a lot of stuff. I spoke to my parents quite a lot. I spoke to kind of people in my year quite a lot about, you know, just about the process of like uprooting your life somewhere for a few years. It was something that we all knew, like we said, like I said in the previous question, it's something that we all knew was going to happen. It's not like we were, you know, this was suddenly dropped on us that we had to go and live somewhere else for three years. It was something that we'd all be building for. So I felt quite prepared before I got there. But then after about a week, I, it all sort of went out the window. I think first year was, first year was quite hard for me. It was that living away from home for the first time thing is obviously hard for anybody. I mean, most people have it when they're 18. Some people have it when they're younger. Some people have it when they're older, whatever. But like that first six months of not living at home, not having the structure of, you know, your mum and dad getting in from work and, you know, people cooking for you and stuff and like having to arrange your, your finances yourself and stuff. Obviously that's, it's part of growing up, but like it has to happen to everybody. Um, mm. And that kind of, yeah. And, and so that was quite hard. And then I think in first year, like you remember what first year of uni is like, for example, everybody's like the everybody's the worst version of themselves honestly people just kind of project onto you and they try and talk really loudly about things that they're interested in or even things that they're not interested in and after about a week I was like I didn't know who to talk to because like everybody's just being really loud and in your face and talking about stories that aren't true and you know telling you all about their amazing holidays and stuff and trying to you know, trying to one-up you and, and stuff like that. I thought the first few weeks was really hard, yeah. Did you have the same thing? Mm -hmm. or? 
Um, I guess it depends what university you go to. I mean, we went to we went to pretty sesh head unis. I think. Yeah, we did. Yes. Yeah, so. Uh, I think that's the, I think that's the, I think that's the uh, PC way of putting it. Um, <laughs> one that won't get in trouble on doing this pod. Um, so I think there was always going to be a bit of that at our unis. I mean, I think I think for me, freshers, I did struggle a lot during freshers, and I th- I, th- I think freshers week is completely overhyped in my opinion. And I think that uh, for a lot of people, I-, I found third year to be the most enjoyable. To be honest, I was in a nice house, um, despite the pressure of dissertations. I actually enjoyed it the most as a year. So yeah, I think freshers year is always any anyone who says they oh, they had like a they had amazing nonstop perfect freshers year is lying to be honest. Yeah, I um, yeah. I agree. We we get we get to we get to second and third year now, Tim. And as part of your French degree, you decided to enroll onto the Erasmus program and study for a year abroad in France. Um, just tell me about why you wanted to do that. You know, step out of the the new comfort zone you were created created for yourself in Leeds, and then and then your experiences during that year. Um, yeah, so I think I think like just speaking to second year first. Like second year was a bit better. I was living with people who I kind of knew and trusted a little bit, and you kind of I think knowing your way around helps a little bit more. You get used to the way of doing work and things. So second year has kind of got, got kind of got my feet on the ground a little bit. And then obviously did I studied French. French is the decision that I made about halfway through year twelve was like I'm can't I can't be bothered doing maths. We have to do French. And obviously, if you do French, you have to do a year abroad. It's part of your course. Mm. And so we were given three options. We were given the option either to study, to be a teaching assistant, or to find our own like placements and things. And so I I had my eye on teaching since I was since I was a kid. My uncle was a teacher in a primary school, and he's kind of always spoken how much he enjoys it and things and so I always thought that would be the one I would go for and so it's to be honest it's quite an easy process you just fill in where you want to do it and you know you, you it's, it's mandatory for everybody who does it so I wrote the three biggest cities that I knew in France you know on my little form handed it in and um yeah I got I was sent to Marseille to, to work in Marseille for a year mm. And looking back, obviously immersing yourself in in the country of the language you are learning seems a, a natural step. But but outside of that, and the fact that you had to do it for your degree, mm-hmm. was there any additional reasons, maybe sort of escapism from perhaps a a uni environment you weren't completely acclimatized to, curiosity, or wanting like an adventure that you could probably call your own as well? Um, good question. Yeah, no, it was definitely part of me was like seeing if I could do adult life in another place that wasn't Leeds. Definitely was part of it. Um, I think I remember thinking that I remember thinking right you've got a chance to go and live in a new place for a second time because like being in these the first few years in these was fine it was all right but like it's obviously it's a different world isn't it Fred? like you know you're, mm. you're surrounded by people your own age you don't ever speak to any of the locals you're kind of focused on work quite a lot and you're not really living the adult life that much um and so, yeah, but so part of it was that I was like, right, because like, I always wanted to live in a city. I didn't want to be in the countryside. I was like, right, you get a chance to kind of live something approaching an adult life with a job and like, uh, you know, with rent to pay and stuff like that. And I think part of it was that the motivation to kind of try and doing adult life somewhere else. But also I wanted to, I mean, I wanted to put my French skills to the test. That was important. You know, I've been learning it for nine years. I've spent God knows how much going to uni for two years you know, trying to learn it. I wanted to put that to the test and I wanted to kind of, I think it's a really cool, going on a year abroad is a really cool thing because you, it's different to other courses because it's like you you actively get to test what you've been learning, you know, mm. every single day, every, every minute of every day for a whole year. And I think that there's only so many placements you can do if you don't do French that can teach you that. But whereas here it's like kind of throwing you in at the deep end going, right, off you go, nine months, away you go. 
you know, you've got, and I had to go all to the, to the schools all on my own and introduce myself in French and be like, hey, I'm going to be a new teacher. And, um, so yeah, I think it would be, it was, it was, it was trying to start something new in a different city. And it was also trying to really, really, really trying to apply what I've been learning for the nine years previously. Mm. That was the motivation, I'd say. Obviously, obviously, living in a foreign country, Tim, for anyone is a big challenge. You know, I certainly wouldn't have been mentally ready for that at that age. From from your experience, what what was that like, and and were there any mental health impacts or, or realities that people might not realise? So, year abroad was like I have to say, year abroad was amazing. For it. it was just incredible. It was such a great time. Like I was living in Marseille, which is one of the most ridiculous, over the top cities in the world, where just anything can happen at any given moment and being able to speak in French every day was really good for me it was like kind of putting transporting you into the real world was um just really just really exciting to be honest more than anything else Mm. it was just really just like such a novelty I remember thinking that like this is a great novelty you can actually have a conversation with someone in a different language and I think for the most part during year abroad it was such a kind of like was in such a kind of dream state for the whole time of you know, just kind of finding new places to go and like talking to new people all the time. Didn't really have anything. I didn't have too much like going on in my head mental health wise. I had a bit of homesickness, I would say. I remember having a bit mm. of homesickness after about, I think after Christmas, I came back for Christmas it's for a couple of weeks during this, because I was working in a school. So we were working to school holidays. Um, I remember after Christmas in that kind of springtime, January, February, feeling a little bit of homesickness. Which you have to, when you're living abroad, you have to like, you just have to deal with it. Fred, do you know what I mean? Like you have to accept mm. that this is going to happen. And you, I think people get a little bit of it at uni if they go to uni far away from home. But and like being in Marseille, it's not that much further. That would probably have been the biggest thing when you were abroad, that kind of missing. You, you will see when, when I come back to France after uni, you'll see that you miss like, the, honestly, Fred, you miss the most mundane stuff. You just mm. miss like, you know, going to the pub on a Friday or like going to Greg's on a Saturday morning. You just miss like, such mundane things and they kind of like if you're having a day like on a Sunday where you're not really speaking to anybody they can kind of those ideas can kind of like fester in your head a little bit of like oh, God, mm. you know I'd love to just have a good chat with my dad or something or you know the lads yeah. from school part of you there's, there was a slight sense of like um there was a little bit of that kind of every, every, everything's kind of on top it's quite a, you know it's quite a big experience going to live there and you know like you know in London I feel like in London like you can speak to this as well like we know our way around in London you know you like you know where places are in London and in Marseille it was like well I don't really know anywhere it is especially in the first few weeks it's kind of like well I don't know where to go for you know you know where the post office is or you don't know where the where a good place to go and have dinner is or something like that that was kind of a bit of a problem but in general year abroad was this kind of like haze of like you know sunshine and like being young and sort of enjoying yourself that it was I was in generally in quite a good place during that year um mm. i would say because it, like the novelty the novelty of it and the fact that i was like living in this crazy place was just was kind of enough to kind of keep me going for like for the time that i was there mm. we we spoke about this off air as well tim about what you wanted to chat about on the pod and this this mental juxtaposition that you experienced whilst in france is what you've just said sort of playing into that or, or was there anything deeper that you can tell the listeners about what you experienced i think that's a good question. I think you there's this, there's this idea that you're two different people is, is quite is was something that I had quite a lot of issue with when I was there. You know, because I, I remember my friend, my friend who hopefully listens to this, Emma, 
she wrote a blog about it when she, I mean, you know, everyone did those year abroad blogs. First, remember that? Yeah, yeah. I did not do one because I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't pretentious enough to write one. <laughs> and she, she was down in somewhere in the south of Spain, and she wrote that when people know her, when pe- people who know her, you know, in England would say that she's quite like, you know, chatty, outgoing. She, she's got an opinion about everything. Um, but I remember her writing like when. In Sp- when she speaks in Spanish, like with Spanish people, they probably think of her as this like quite quiet, sort of almost like meek kind of person. Do you know what I mean? Because like introverted more. Yeah, because you can't express yeah. what you want to express um, in the second language as you can in the first. And this is something that, especially when I went back after university, when I actually when I lived for like ages with, with French people, you, you you it made me really kind of. I don't know what the word, maybe frustrated would be the word of like, you're, you're kind of, you're able to say like 90% of what you wanted to say in your second language, but you're not able to say a hundred percent of what you wanted to say. Mm. Um, and that means that you kind of, sometimes it means that you don't say anything at all and you sit there and you go, we or no, you know, and that's it. Um, but also it means that sometimes you say something and then you don't, quite get across what you wanted to get across and people either give you a weird look or they disagree with you and especially you know french people they're quite argumentative and <laughs> you kind of go oh that's not what i wanted to say i wanted to say this i wanted to say that that is it that was it, it's 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 kind of frustrating it's really interesting like just on, on the face of it it's an interesting like thing but it's, it was also really like frustrating at times because it meant it definitely meant and Emma will say this as well, it meant that often you erred on the side of not saying something than saying something. Yeah, that would that would really frustrate me, to be honest. You know me, like, I talk yeah, to friends. Yeah, so it would having, really, yeah, it yeah. would really frustrate you, yes, Fred, I would agree. Yeah, and, um, people, and people misunderstand me in English, let alone in a, <laughs> in a different language. Before we move on, Tim, for, for anyone listening to the pod who, who might be considering studying a language or um, as a degree, or wanting to move abroad, to be honest, um, what advice or message would you give them, mental health-wise or job benefits? I would say, I would say, if you want to live abroad in a country whose language you don't speak, I would say make sure you study it quite comprehensively. The number of people, <laughs> the number of people studying languages at university is going down by twenty-five percent every year um, at the moment. So, I mean, on the, I mean, let's look at it in a positive way, Fred. That does probably mean there'll be places available for you if you want to study it. Um, I would say make sure that you make sure that you have good relationships with a lot of people at home who you can pick up the phone to and speak to whenever you want, especially on like a weekday evening in the winter. Um, and I would say try try and live with locals, and or just try and speak the language as often as you possibly can, because as much of part of it is a part of it can be learned in school. Or there's also only so much that you can learn in school. And that once you sit down and actually have conversations with people in that language, then you will find yourself to be much better. Um, at the end of these two years abroad, Tim, you, you decided to move back to London. Just just tell me about the process that went behind this decision. You know, Were you feeling homesick? Did you want a change of scenery? Or, or perhaps just see better opportunities in the UK as opposed to France? You know, who's, who's the Tim we meet here as opposed to when you embarked on this two-year adventure? You know, what did you learn and, and, and how, did you, how do you reflect on it looking back? Um, so after uni, I had two years of living in Lyon, which is just up from Marseille, um, which, in which I, you know, kind of 
made life, you know. I lived in like lots of different flats and, you know, kind of felt much more comfortable with French, lived with French people for a long time, had two different jobs. It was good, but I have to say, I never, I, when I got there in the summer of 2016, I always said I would live there for two years and then go. I just didn't think it was somewhere where I could live permanently, to be honest. I never like saw it as a permanent thing. I have friends there who have, they're a little bit older than me, who have kind of got their eye on like settling down there and like living there forever. But it, part of it was a homesickness thing, but also part of it was I just didn't want to more than anything else above everything. Mm. Just, I missed, I, I wanted to live in London. I hadn't, I, when I came back, I hadn't lived in London for um six years pretty much six mm. years being away from london which is obviously as you and i both know i might work you know one of the one of the best cities to live in and also where my parents and all my friends live um so there was a moment um like the end of the summer of 2018 um where i kind of got the notice on my flat and they were like right you've got a month and you've got to find somewhere else to live this is like September, October, I can't remember, like 2018. And I just sort of thought that's, that's it for me. I think I can't be bothered to go go through the process of finding a flat. It's not easy in, in France. You have to have endless bits of paper and, you know, um, you have to kind of commit. To, I, had to, I would have had to kind of commit to being there for another year. And I just kind of thought, I just kind of thought, I did what any self-respecting 23-year-old Freddie does when he has to make an important decision and I rang my mum and I was like I think this might be it for me she was like yeah fine so then I decided to 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 come back here and I I think it was fine I think I was there for the right time I think that's something else I would recommend is like make sure you don't say you're going forever when you go because then you're always going to like fall on your expectations say that you'll go there for a year and then if you enjoy it you know go for stay for a bit longer Um, and then if you enjoy that stay for a bit longer as well um mm. so yeah there was a time when i was just like this is this isn't it, and it i don't think it was a i'll be honest i don't think it was like a, a mental health decision or anything i don't think it was affecting my well-being i think i probably could have stayed for a bit longer but i just decided like enough's enough i'm on the way i'm going to come back to london mm. Go- going back to living in the area that we we both grew up mate did you ever feel like or have some sort of anxiety that you might slip into a rut when you got back or or perhaps get tired of seeing the same people out and about? Or were you actually excited about seeing some familiar faces? You know, was your sense of purpose and direction still there? Probably. Good question. Probably somewhere between the two, I think. I think it's quite easy, especially when you're living abroad, to kind of to come back here and kind of kind of act up to it a little bit, do you know what I mean? We did this when we were at uni a little bit, you know, like pretend that you're having a great time or, you know, kind of, um, what's the word, elaborate on the on your experience. Um, so I think part of it, and I think I remember coming back here to my parents' house and being like, you know, what are you going to do now? This is a bit, this is a bit dreary. Um, but I also knew that that kind of, those people and that kind of environment was one of the things that I was missing as well. So, um it was kind of a mixture of the two. Part of me was like, oh, you know, like getting on the central line every day, that's going to be horrible. And like, you know, having to kind of go back to being in England and talk about the sort of things that English people talk about. On the face of it, it seems quite dreary and boring when you've been living in France for like three years in total, I suppose. But also, that was what I'd been like, that was one of the things that I'd been waiting to do, you know, just going to the pub on a Friday or like, you know, seeing you lot in, out and about and stuff and like, Mm. and just just boring, boring like just like going to football and stuff it's just like that was the sort of thing that i'd been missing that i hadn't been able to have in france so i guess it's kind of between the two i know what you mean about um 
like being stuck in a rut when you get back here. And I think that the fact that I didn't have a job kind of made me, it gave me something to do. Do you know what I mean? Like it gave me like a thing, like a project to focus on that meant that I wouldn't get stuck in this kind of, you know, moping around the house, doing nothing kind of thing. It's like, right, no, you haven't got any money. You need to concentrate and get a job. And then you can kind of get back into London life. Mm. I hear that. I hear that. Um, another discussion point you wanted to talk about, Tim, was around the workplace and, and particularly stress management. Now, firstly, just tell me why this was something you wanted to discuss and then your experiences of it. So my job at the moment is, so it's in the, it's in a customer service department, right? So, and we have to manage, it's, it's, like, it's like a call, so we're like the management of like a call center is what we do. So we have to make sure that everybody's in the right place at the right time in order to like, attain a series of like targets you know the kind of thing i'm talking about right yeah yeah definitely so we have a lot of different things that we have to attain at any one time which means that i have a lot of different people in my ear at any one time telling me to do something right Mm -hmm. so in that sense you can end up with in the space of about 20 minutes you can go with nothing on your to-do list to five or six things on your to-do list you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. in that sense i've I started this role in, uh, I think, November or December of last year. In, in that role, in, in the role that I'm in now, I find it quite hard to organize tasks when I come in, right? And that, I think, directly or indirectly, I think that leads to feeling stressed, you know? It's the same as, that's why I said it when I was talking about school. It's the same as that. It's the same as, like, things building up, that things seeming like everybody's against you. It's that same kind of mentality that you have. And then you kind of feel like you're... A little bit helpless and that you can't really you can't do anything to kind of combat this because it's just going to keep building up and keep building up this things that you need to do every day the things that you need to do every week the special projects that get given to you and so what i end up with normally is like a big list i've got a little book i've actually got the book on my desk because i'm at my desk where i work at the moment as i speak to you now with like my essentially my to-do list on um and sometimes it has, <clears throat> sometimes it's great on Friday afternoons, it only has two or three things on, but sometimes it will have seven or eight different things on. And you have to sit down and you have to work out which ones to do and in which order. And that is something that I am still learning on 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 how to do. I don't know if you have the same at your place, but that's the, that was the issue for me. And what I will say, actually, Fred, what I was going to say is that we have, um, we have a really, really nice, like, um, L&D lady is that learning and development we have like a you know she did yeah, like the yeah. general coaching for us at work and she gave me that she sent me on this like uh time management course it's like two hours she arranged this course for like four or five of us in the office and she tried to like uh you know teach us all of this uh, you know the, the methods that she has for dealing with stress and so that was only a couple of weeks ago I think uh, I think it was just before lockdown it was like no this maybe a bit longer ago then so I'm still trying to put all of that, you know, that urgent, important access thing. I'm still trying to put all of that into practice. And it's and it is not, it's nice to have her there because I can just ring her up and go, right, just go through go through that with me again. Which order should I do everything in? Which, you know, how should I do that? How should I do this? Um, so that's helping me a little bit. But it's not, I, yeah, it's, it's, I still haven't quite got the hang of it, but I'm getting there. It's been six months I've been in this particular job and I'm getting there, but. Um, apart from your learning and development um, colleague, when you have been struggling with this sort of thing, have you ever told anyone about it? At work, yes. At work, yes, because... Uh, outside of work? Um, I think my parents once or twice, yes. My, my, yeah, my parents. I have spoken okay, to them. Okay, so they're, they're your like, main pillar of support then, you'd say your parents, rather than your friends when it comes to sort of those sort of struggles? 
Would that be fair to say? Oh, that's a good question, Fred. I think probably yes. I think I just feel like my parents have more life experience in that regard. I feel like they they'd be better served to answer any questions that I would have about life. Okay, that's say. interesting. But what do you yeah. think? Go on, tell me. No, no, because my, I mean, for various reasons, mine has always been my friends. Yeah. But then I've always found that I have to narrow my narrow the friends who I tell <laughs> that about because a lot of people will say from a very good place, but now things that are meaningless. Yeah. So you can't really do much of that. And so if you when you go to someone and you say this, say X and Y, and they give you a quite, you know, banal response from a good place, you can tell that they're not gonna be the kind of person that's gonna act yeah. like proactively help you. I know what you mean. And I think I think part of it comes from I mean obviously like I wish I, tr- I just trust my parents more because they have more experience in this kind of thing. Like my dad has been doing vaguely speaking a similar job to me for the last few years and so i know that if i come to him and i say right look you need to help me with like getting things in order or help me with this or help me with that i know he's going to give me a good answer and like a considered answer and my friends are i guess probably similar but I, maybe it's that i don't know maybe it's that i would, I would trust them less but it's like i would trust my parents more do you know what i mean like to give me a, an answer with a lot of you know experience and information to back it up i think with your friends it's more like a kind of relieving the stress kind of thing whereas it's more like like Freddie, you just need to vent to them don't you that's it um i think if you i think often like with my friends like now i think most of us if we are stressed we'll take the time to have like a little 10 minutes of like right this is why i hate this is why i hate this this is why i hate that um and then some one or two of them might might chip in with a little oh i had a similar experience um you know and then maybe they'll give you a little bit of like a hint, but it depends on what line of work they're in, doesn't it? Like mm, if you're in a different so. line of work to someone, you're not going to be able to offer that. You're going to have to offer a little bit of support, but not that much. Um, mm. So I think that's what I use my friends for is just a little kind of, you know, a Friday evening kind of five minutes, like, Oh, this happened and it was terrible. And I just need to kind of like let off some steam. Um, whereas my parents is more like a, so how would you actually go about fixing this? I think that's, that's the stage that I've got to. Certainly since I came back to London, that's what I've been doing. Um, mm. Looking forward now, Tim, you've you've gone through this journey. Who's the Tim we meet now and, and how do you reflect on where you've you've come from and, and where you are at this point? You know, is there anything you'd say perhaps to younger Tim that, that might have helped him that knowing what you do now? I'd tell him to I'd tell him to sort his hair out and buy some proper shoes, but that's beside the point. <laughs> um I think <laughs> I think I I think I'm pretty content with how it's been. I think I live in France for exactly the right amount of time. I think I left at exactly the right time, in my own opinion. But I think if I'd stayed there for any longer, I probably would I would have enjoyed it a lot less. And since I came back, the only problem, the only issue that I've really had was it took me a little bit of a while. It took me a little while to get out of my, to move out of my parents' house. Um, but the, I have a job that is, <laughs> whilst it's stressful, it is, it is enjoyable. Like we have a lot of, there's a lot of good chat in the office and there's a lot of, I feel like I'm quite respected there now and quite important. I think one of the things that I had was, um, I don't know, I, 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 it takes me a while to get settled in and stuff, you know, to new to new jobs. And I always feel a bit uneasy about being the newest person there. But mm-hmm. after, I've been there since the start of last year, so like almost 18 months now. And so I feel a bit more at home there. I feel pretty, pretty content with heights. But obviously there's been moments when like, it hasn't been going that well, but I've always felt like I've had the ability to kind of, endure them for a bit and then come out of the the other side or change something about the way that i 
live my life in order to kind of fix it. I think I, I think it's been okay. I wish I could have exercised a bit more and been better at football, but you know, apart from that, I feel pretty content. I just need to get back to the flat and get back to living in normal life before I can really give you a proper answer. <laughs> <laughs> One thing you were keen to discuss, Tim, on this pod is social media and, and why you decided to come off it altogether. Just firstly, tell me a bit how it was affecting you before you came off it and then what it's been like since you relinquished it. Um, so we, I, was off it, I was off Twitter completely for a year from November, just after I came back till November of last year. And we still don't really go on Twitter at the moment. I think, it, do you know what, going on Twitter, it just makes you angry, Fred. Mm. I think it, it, you read things and you just like you, they anger you, and then you and I think the other part of it is that part of it is reading stuff that you just don't need to read in your life. You just don't need to read that kind of level of animosity and kind of hatred that is ba- that is bandied around quite a lot on Twitter. But, and even if you you don't obviously you choose who you can follow, but it somehow it finds its way you know onto your screen, and you can and you you still read it, and it just makes you feel like you know angry about something. Um. Mm. I think that's, and I was just like, I don't need this anymore. I just, I don't need this in my life anymore. I don't need to, to read these kind of these people's opinions anymore. I, I don't, I, this is not of interest to me. Um, Did you so, find that was the case with Twitter or Instagram? Um, I think they're two different things, aren't they? So the problem with Twitter is that you, oh God, people just feel compelled to write stuff all the time that, they just, that I just don't need to hear. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? And it's not people I know, and it's not it's not necessarily famous people. I think we all used to be like I think we all used to be like that a little bit, but no, Fred, your Twitter account is, is great. You don't. I agree with a lot of the people. You, I did used to be like that. I did used to be that person, though, mate. I can't lie. I think university years just make you like opinionated about everything. Yeah, I've always been young. I think I still am. I think I still am, but like I'm not compelled to write every opinion I have now. Yeah, I, that just that's that really started to get on my nerves. Um, um because because if everybody starts if everybody feels compelled to write their opinion on about it then the people who are quite you know i guess then the people who are quite um sort of quiet and reserved they have their opinions and stuff but the people who are strong-minded and loud and have very contrasting and you know abrasive opinions they also feel compelled to write what whatever they want and that means that you read stuff that you either vehemently disagree with or you just think is just wrong you know, mm. um, and so and so those people get kind of press and like promotion and stuff, and I just it made me really angry. And then obviously Instagram is different because Instagram is the different kind of phenomenon. You've got two different things here because Instagram is a different phenomenon where people like project a different image of themselves. I think Shane was talking about this. Mm. People project a different image of themselves that just isn't true, which one hundred percent kind yeah. of unsettling um, that it's had to come to this. It's, it's, it's come to this level in, in, in society genuinely it, you know, it unsettles me that we've had to we're at the stage now where people want to pretend to that extent that they're enjoying themselves when they probably or they almost certainly are do you know what I mean yeah I'm 100%, harsh, 100%. but I don't know if that's yeah kind of... no 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 it's true it's true mate I, I, what I found during the lockdown is is that and especially COVID-19 that previously Instagram was probably the more triggering or more negative social media platform for me because like you said, you I was seeing all of these people just living fake lives and a lot of people I was seeing from like union stuff, like they were just such boring people in real life. Mm-hmm. And like you see them on Instagram and you just fit and you're like, you are not that person. Like you are really, really boring. Especially with uni people. 
a lot of people, as we know, a lot of people after uni moved to moved around a little bit. People gonna move live in different countries or travel a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, you look at Instagram, all these pretty things. You're like, mate, I've lived abroad. It's not like that. You spend a mm. hell of a lot of your time filling in forms and you know being homesick and like going to work in exactly the same way that you would in any normal in any normal country you know sorry if you're living in london exactly the same but mm. with more feelings of like you know and you and you and you go to the same bars the, the bar that you know that's cheap with your friends who you know you speak you see every weekend it's not you're not living this kind, no one is living this kind of you know like vaguely sort of jet set lifestyle yeah exactly yeah. you're not living a jet set lifestyle yeah. so you're not living this kind of like peace and love make friends with everybody you know fitting in with the locals of course you're not you know you don't need to lie with yeah. them that you are oh. Yeah, yeah. I, I I found that before before the lockdown, Twitter was almost like the platform where I could not not that it was not it was massively better, but obviously I've made a lot of connections with mental health advocates on Twitter, yeah, and it just seems like it seemed like a night. Well, depending on how you you know structure your feed, at the time it seemed like a not a lot of more of a nicer place. Yeah. Whereas now I almost get more. You know, Instagram's almost my escape a little bit. Yeah. And now that I've structured my feed and I always, I only view the stories of friends that I want to actually, you know, keep connecting yeah. with. Instagram's well, almost become like a better place than yeah, Twitter. I've like I lost agree, a lot. Yeah. I think I agree. And now everybody's, especially in lockdown, everyone's kind of a bit more honest about their life and that they are just spreading their whole life, mm. you know, baking. And everyone's on it. Everyone's yeah. on it. You can't escape. Time, yeah. like, I would love if it wasn't, for, you know, obviously if I always say like, if it wasn't for Venn, I'd, I'd, I, you know, I'd delete maybe a couple of apps off my phone or whatever. Yeah. But, also, um, I found that, you know, what else do I do? It's like a second nature thing. Like I can read, yeah. I can play PS4. Yeah. You know, I can't, I can't really do much else right now. So <laughs> you naturally just go onto your phone. And if everyone's doing that all the time, there were, then it's there just were, breeding ground for, for, for nonsense. Yeah. There were times last year when I wasn't on Twitter when I felt a little bit disconnected from the news. But also, like, you know, come on, it's not that bad. You know, you go on. You, you know, I, I, I'm not someone that needs to be switched on all the time. I've got BBC Sport for football. I've got Enemy for music. I've got, the, you know, The Guardian for sports coverage as well. Like, it's not, you don't have to go on Twitter for this. But the, sorry, the thing I was going to say about Twitter, Fred, is that I know it wasn't just lockdown that's inspired this to me. I, I'm loathe to talk about politics, but it's, that Brexit was the worst on Twitter. Yeah, I feel it you. It was just like everybody, the only people who got any sort of traction or coverage were the people on either end of the spectrum. That's what I mm. found. So it was either... It, you either read tweets from these extremely like you know the kind of like uh, i don't want to slag people off but like these you know kind of self-important you know remainers who were like you know to, you know to kind of yeah it's like it's like the self-righteous left to the self-righteous right isn't yeah, it exactly these are yeah, the only people yeah. who you ever read tweets about you know because these were the and people would be angry about them whether on which side you know i don't care what side you're on but like you know whatever side you're on you'd be angry about the other side um, mm. And you wouldn't, and, and no one, there was no middle ground. There's absolutely not. There's no middle ground. You're either slagging off Remainers for being, you know, liberal, lefty, Guardian reading, you know, that kind of thing. Or you were slagging off Leavers for being, you know, old fashioned, like agricultural sort of racist, you know? And it, there was no, there was nothing in the middle. There was mm. only these two things on either side. And it, it got on, can I swear? Yeah, you can swear. Yeah, you can swear. Fucking got on my nerves so much. Honestly, it was like it was. It was just I, I, there's there was no niceness on it anymore, and there was no opinions. There was just people shouting louder and louder. That's what made me go on Twitter, and it made it. A I really... think yeah. I think I think the best way to look at 
social media, Tim, is that it's a tool. You know, it can be used negatively or positively depending on the platform you use. Is is that something you'd agree with? In a sense, in a sense, yeah. And I think for someone like you, definitely yes, because you are aiming to kind of promote this to as many people as possible and to an increasing number of people every week or every you know every you know, every month or whatever. Um, and I think that it's it's an ideal, it's kind of an ideal place for for stuff like this, for for like small companies and podcasts and things to kind of, you know, it's that kind of, it's almost like word of mouth but online, isn't it? It's that kind of circle of yeah, friends. you know, sure. one person tells one person, and then you know, you ten people put more follow you. So I think in some ways it can be used, you know, really well. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that it's great and that there are other parts of it that, that, that every other part of it is fine like there are a lot you know at the end of the day there's still a lot of people who are not interested in spouting their opinions on things that i'm not interested in so you have to kind of avoid i think you have to use it in the right way and to be honest mm. even though i've been on twitter for 11 years as i just got my anniversary email the other day um i still haven't worked out how to use it properly and try and you know because on the one hand you don't want to you don't want to just follow people who agree with you because then that's the echo chamber thing isn't it um, but also, on the other hand, I don't want to read, you know, I don't want to read these people, you know, being racist or being sterling and, you know, you know, spouting nonsense about immigrants and stuff. So you you have to find a balance in on a personal sense. But I think for someone like you, it can definitely be used as a tool for good. Yeah. Uh, what what tips or advice would you would you give to someone who's struggling to manage how social media affects them or, or simply their usage of it? I I would say take. I haven't done this yet, but what I, my advice would be take especially during lockdown when you haven't got that much to do, take two hours and go through every single person you follow and decide if they're genuinely worth following or not. Because there's, or a mute lot them. Of people, and there's a lot of people on Twitter who I followed blindly because I knew their name when I first got it 10 years ago and I'm still going through their accounts now. And I'm not interested in them. That would be my main piece of advice. Also, I, I don't know how to say this in a nice way, Fred, but I'll try. Don't just tweet everything you think would be another thing. Is that fair? Uh, like if, if, if yeah, to, like I, I get what you're about, saying. Yeah, or only tweet about things that you're passionate about. Maybe don't just. Yeah, don't just I, I think I think I think it's yeah. No, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Yeah, because I'll you, leave it in. I think you are yeah, good. <laughs> I think you you only tweet about stuff that you genuinely care. And well, now I do. Yeah, <laughs> now, now it's just Simpsons. Anyway, yeah. Now it's just Simpsons retweets. <laughs> But I think if you want to mute me, they can. Yeah, I think you're quite a good example because you only tweet about stuff that you're properly, you properly are for. Yeah, and there's about. also reasons why I can't tweet about politics to some degree. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Though? Like, there is that. Yeah. And sometimes I'm just like I'm not interested in reading this about you. Well, you're actually a rare exception. No, I'm joking. Um, yeah, I'm just <laughs> make sure that you're make sure that you're only putting opinions on the internet that you genuinely feel passionate about and that you aren't just putting on for the sake of it. I think that's really important. 100%. Yeah. I do think that's really I think, important. I, I know, yeah. yeah. I, I always say to people that, you know, if someone's affecting you, regardless of whether you're mates with them or not, just mute them. Yeah. You don't have to unfollow them. Just mute yeah. them. Like, if they're going to get offended yeah. by you unfollowing them, then calm. Just, don't do that. Just just mute them. Take them off your feed. Or just Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. or if you see something that, you're, that you don't like, you think about the person you're following and go, just have a sort of re-up on your kind of, you know, relationship with them. Why am I following this person? Do am I interested in them? You know, do I need to keep doing this? And then if you want, you can unfollow them or you can mute them. You know, it's it's not it's not the end of the world. But I think you need to probably be doing that quite often, especially in this day and age where everybody follows hundreds of people. Mm. It's really important just to 
if someone keeps posting stuff that you don't like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, just just have a little kind of mental decision to make and go, right, do I need to, is, is my life being enriched by seeing this person's content on Instagram or Twitter? And if the answer is no, then don't think twice about like muting them so that you don't see them as regularly. Our final topic of conversation, Tim, and it's one I try to have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So obviously circumstances aside, or including, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? I think, <laughs> I think we have to include the circumstances, Fred, let's be honest. It's a strange time for all of us. Um, I, I, in, in general, up, you know, up until three weeks ago, I would say I was, I was, I was doing pretty well. I'm, ju- I've always judged myself in terms of like other parts, in terms of other times in my life where I've been happier or I've been less happy. I think everybody's quite up and down, aren't they? Um, especially when you are our age. Um, <clears throat> but until lockdown, I was feeling quite good. I had a bit, you know, there was a bit of stress at work that was kind of getting me down. But I had got, um, just moved house. Um, what were we? About two weeks before we all got sent back to our parents' houses because of this virus. Um, So I was kind of, I was kind of getting used to that kind of finally living somewhere that I'd chosen to live a bit nearer to work. And I was kind of getting, finally being able to feel like I was getting back into the swing of living in London. Obviously since lockdown, it's, it's, I'm I'm kind of coping. I don't know about you. I mean, we have to talk about this, don't we? I'm, I'm coping reasonably well. I've got my own space where I can work. I'm still working. I haven't been laid off. You know, I'm fortunate to say that now. Um, given the circumstances of other people. But obviously I am missing, like, dearly missing all my friends and, like, going to the football and going to the pub and stuff. So I would say I've, I've definitely I've definitely be, felt worse than I do now, but I've also definitely felt quite a lot better than I do now as well. Mm. And, and if you felt comfortable saying, Tim, what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and, and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? Um, well... I've never, I've never, so I've never been, like, I've never been to the doctors for mental health. I've never felt compelled enough to, you know, uh, admit that, or not admit, but like, you know, I've never felt like I've ever suffered from something on a serious level. Um, I've always been someone who worries quite a lot about things, especially about the future. I've always been quite an anxious person in that regard. Um, I've always felt like, sort of, yeah, concerned about concerned about what might happen, and I've always I've never really been able to sleep that well. I've always been a warrior just before you go to sleep, Fred. You know what I mean? Mm. That time, like when you're kind of tossing and turning. I've had I've, I've had trouble like getting to sleep. Honestly, for as long as I can remember, for, for certainly since I was in our, in our old house in Bow, like certainly since I was about eight or nine, I've always had like always been someone who like tosses and turns before they can get to sleep. Um, that's probably the biggest thing for me is like worrying about the future, and it also had, I had. I'm going to use the past tense because I don't really have it anymore. I know it's something you spoke about this week on, on your Twitter. Was um, I had a little bit of social anxiety in the past as well. Like I, had, mm. I think living in France didn't really help that either. Like I had quite like a like a like a sort of fear of what other like what other people thought of me, which I know you've spoken about before as well. Um, mm. Which in France is kind of magnified by the fact that I had to concentrate on what I was saying as well while trying to you know make an impression on people. That would be the two main things I think. Mm. Um, and what age do you think you were when you first realised that you know these feelings you were having weren't actually physical and they were they were in your own head basically? That's a good question. Probably probably about the same age as everybody I would have thought. Probably about fourteen or fifteen. Mm. That was when I first started to have like it was it was it's when it, like I said it's when your work starts building up at school. That was when you 
the first time you realize, right, I'm feeling this sensation of worrying and it's not going away and it's been here for like weeks on end. That would be the first time that I had it. And then it kind of, it, can, it comes and goes really in my life. Like I know if I'm, if the, the, the longer I am in the same place, doing the same thing, having a routine, the easier it gets in general in terms of like the worrying, which is annoying because I spent quite a lot of my life since I was 18 moving around quite a lot. So it kind of comes and goes in ways a little bit. Um, yeah. Mm. Uh, and what things do you find in life that that might trigger your mental health so it might be things someone says uh sounds sensations you know what what could you tell me um about those triggers or or if you maybe haven't even figured them out yet i'm not sure i have figured them out you know really i think it it's in it's in terms of like worrying about the future it changes it it does change on a sort of day-to-day basis i always say it depends on what side of the bed i wake up on i said that before yeah like it it's not so i think i don't think it's something i've really been able to control like obviously when you're like when you're like like when you get a bit of life admin to do like when you know when you're moving house or something or changing job or you know you're you know like when you have a list of tasks to do outside of work that that is getting increasingly longer that's when i mm. feel like if, you know that if that everything's on top of me stress kind of thing but in terms of like worrying and concerning it might just be someone it might be like a, sometimes i'll have like a conversation about um have like a conversation about the past or something or even a conversation about the future and then i'll go home and go to bed and kind of lie and think about it for a little bit normally about the future and you'll go oh, so what will happen then or what won't happen then or do you remember that time when that happened and that's quite mm-hmm. fun and then you'll kind of sit and think about that for a little bit and kind of sort of ruminate on it ruminate yeah when you get that moment yeah. on your own in bed you know waiting to go to sleep you kind of go actually to be fair at the moment it's more when we talk about the past i'm quite nostalgic in my nature i often like to kind of reminisce about like times when you were quote happier unquote and so often i think about that when it's not necessarily true that you were happier but you kind of think that you were i don't know if you have that as well actually yeah i think rumination is something i have quite severely but it's 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 something i've got under control at the moment um but i think Um, it i think it um I think it takes shape in what you worry about, to be honest. So, yeah, I think it just depends on what your brain decides to ruminate on. Yeah, so I'm, I do a lot about, at the moment, I'm doing a lot. Of, I think it's probably because I'm back at my parents and I'm in the room that, you know, I lived in since I was 15. I'm doing a lot of thinking about, about the past. And, and I think it's, when I think about that, it's kind of like, oh, you're enjoying yourself a lot at that time. Why aren't you enjoying yourself that much now? Do you know what I mean? Does that make mm. sense? Or is that So you're sort of making yourself feel bad for not being as grateful? Yes, or as or as uh, as just enjoying yourself as much in that sense. Right. Go, oh, well, that time it was great. You know, everything was under control, and you had this and you had that. When in reality, it probably wasn't true, and you probably are. You know, prob- I probably am happier than my brain thinks that I am sometimes. Um, mm. But that's the kind of thing that kind of leads me to spend a lot of time trying to get to sleep. I would say. Mm. Um, and what tools and methods do you use in your own life tim to improve your mental health or, or help you feel better you know which ones have have worked and, and which ones that haven't you know you've you've talked about um you know both of us i'd say tim you mm. know gigs being a massive self-care tool yeah. how, how do music how does music and, and gigs specifically improve your mental health and and also how did losing that to covid19 affect you and, and your mental health? because it definitely affected me a lot at the start extremely badly how it affected me i've always been someone who i've always felt like that i can use music to kind of not only improve but also like dictate my mood a little bit like if you and it's it's especially in the last few years it's become a little bit of escapism and stuff like that 
So I think now, obviously working from home, we can have our headphones in. So if I'm, I've got, if I'm feeling a bit like stressed or a bit kind of, you know, a bit kind of fed up with the whole the lockdown situation, I can put on an album or a song that I, you know, relate to and enjoy. And it, I was thinking about this actually. You can either have one that, when you feel, say, when you're feeling sad or when you're feeling anxious, you can either put on a song that helps you to continue to feel that way, which is mm, not ideal but good in the short term, or you can you can play a song or an album that makes you kind of takes yourself out of this state of anxiety or worry and into something more positive. Um, so I've been doing that quite a lot. I've always done that, really, to be honest. My dad's my dad's kind of taught me the ways of music as a as a like a healing a healing process. So I've always been I've always been good at doing that, especially now. Now I've got a slightly bit more. Now I listen to slightly more varied genres of music and can get slightly more of a handle on it. And then I was going to ask you about going to gigs actually first. So I, I'm I was trying to decide what the best part of going to a gig is. Is it either is it either the anticipation before the gig of oh my god mm-hmm. going to a gig is really exciting. Is it the present the moment of being there and being in the same room as your favorite artist or is it telling everybody about how great it was after the event? All three of them. Do you know what? Yeah. All do you know what? This is a tough one. And this is this is a question I've not explored yet on this pod, and I wanted to do it at some point. So for me, because I go to so many all the time, mm. A, it, it does depend. Or A, it depends on if you're going with someone, first of all. Yeah. If you're going on your own, you've got to G yourself up a lot more. Yeah. Um, B, I think the anticipation of going, right? So I always do the classic, like, you know, even if if, if I know the band inside out, I'll just still listen to them like the night before or the, on the way there. Yeah. But if it's a band that I'm going where I haven't got as much of a hand on their back catalogue, I'll just listen to, I'll just listen to loads of their stuff like on repeat for the, like the two days up leading up to the gig. Um, I'd say if you're going on your own, the journey there is actually the worst I'd yeah. say. And the journey <laughs> yeah. back, actually no, the journey back's worse than the journey there. Well, the journey back is definitely, but it is definitely worse because you've got the endorphin rush. But it's late at night. You've got no one to tell it about. <laughs> tell yeah, about you've got it, no yeah. one to tell it about. You've only got your Instagram photos and <laughs> short little clips that you've got to keep yourself amused. I always get, I always take like a couple short ones and add them to my gig life Instagram story archive, which yeah. is now like 500 Instagram stories long. <laughs> um, I'd say I'd say for me, the present moment's got to be because when when I, I always say to people like when i go they people can't understand how i go to so many gigs on my own and now it's become so normalized even i sometimes realize like bloody hell i've been to like 20 gigs this year on my own mm. um i always find that when i get there if i want to see a support act or i know who the support act is the waiting time in between when the gig when the band come on is the worst yeah. Because you're sitting there. If you've got no 4G either, that's really shit. Because <laughs> then you're just standing there with a drink. And if you don't want to drink, you're just standing there on your own, just pretending to look at your phone and killing time. Um, oh but, God, but, yes, yes. Every time, every single time. Every time. I can't relate every to that time. enough. <laughs> um, but when the, the, the band come on, everyone just focuses on that. So, like, if it's a really loud gig, I'll put my earplugs in. Or if it's not a really loud gig and I don't, I can feel like I can sort of risk it. I'll, I'll keep them out for the immerse, the full immersive experience. But I think when I'm in that moment, like no one matters. Like I can yeah. be, I can be myself at the same time as not being myself. It's really weird. Like whenever music comes on in a club, bar, whatever, and I hear it, my, it's almost like I've become a different person. Mm. But I feel more, I feel more in that moment myself than at any point in my entire life mm. 
I'd say the only experience, like, yeah, it's really weird. I'd say more than football, more than, you know, like that, that moment when you hear a song that you like and you start dancing, I don't think there's any, there's no other experience that I can compare that to. Um, yeah, I'd say definitely when I'm in the moment, I'd say, you know, that's when I, I enjoy it a gig the most. And I think people who know me and know you probably, Tim, that when they hear something that I enjoy, I'll like just ignore them. Like I'll just go into my own world <laughs> or, or I'll do the opposite and try and get everyone to dance at the same time. <laughs> when even people don't. I think if you, if, if you ask my friend, <laughs> I think if you ask my friends who I went to see the 1975 in January about that, they would definitely agree with you that I was just like in the own world for like an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah. Well, hundred percent. I think I really, I've really come to enjoy, especially since I've become, especially since we start, especially since like adult life, I've come to really enjoy that like sensation of like, like booking it, putting it in your calendar, like having something to look forward to. I think that's really mm. important, especially if, like, um, especially when you think about mental health, obviously, because especially if you plan it like a few weeks in advance, you've kind of got something to look forward to. Do you know what I mean? Like you've got this mm. thing in your calendar. It's like if it's, if it's one of your favorite bands, one of your bands. If it's not, you know, it's someone you like. Something to something like it's almost like something to keep going for. Something that's going to make all of this going to work every day kind of worthwhile. Um, mm, I've, always, I've always had that obviously I'm not saying like you know what I mean right you know you, you have this kind of oh, yeah, 100%. You, know, you know this like week by week thing but you've got ah look five weeks and one day I'll be here doing this you know and it gives you something mm. to report. so that's why I asked you that question because I think that the, <laughs> the anticipation of it is almost as good as actually being there because you 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 when you're there obviously it depends on who you're seeing, doesn't it? And it does depend on whether you are or not. But in general, like obviously, being there is the best bit. Like you know, you have to be honest. You get to see all the staging and the production, and you get that sensation of like being in the same room as someone that you really like is always something that's appealed to me. Just like that kind of like childish kind of like, oh my god, that's him. That kind, you know, that kind of yeah, thing. yeah. Um, and also, I think being in the crowd is something that I enjoy. I yeah. So I think it was a toss up between those two for me. Just uh, while you speak about going to gigs on your own. I know this is something that we are both passionate about. I remember the first time I, I went to see, I went, I went to a show on my own, and I remember that moment between the support act, between between the support oh, it's act horrible. and the main act. And I, <laughs> I remember my 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 father is is my dad is no stranger to going to gigs on his own. He's lived in London for I don't know forty years ish, and he is uh, he's not the sort of person who would go to a gig with like five of his mates. He's the sort of person who goes to gigs on his own. You know? And so he's been doing it for years. So I remember texting my dad, like, what do I do? Like, you know, I can't go to the bar again. I've already been twice. And he was like, yeah, you can. Don't no, worry. You know, it's fine. You know, you've got, he said, you've got to perfect, you've got to perfect the look that says, I'm just waiting for all my friends. They've just gone to the toilet um, to try and make yourself look like you're, you know, not on your own. Um, so, and then that, the first one I went to kind of like opened the floodgates. And now I kind of, I'm a bit more okay with it. Obviously, I understand it's not for everybody. Um, but yeah, you can. Mm. I think it's, it's yeah. once you do it once or twice, you can really like you just accept. Yeah, like, once yeah. you do it once or twice, it, it's all. It just becomes normalised for me. Yeah, like, I, yeah. The, me too. The, the waiting between the support act and the main act is still annoying, especially yeah. if you have only four G. But if oh. I, what I do is I always, if I have got four G, I'll literally just say to one of my mates, like, or one of my close mates anyway, who's ch who's normally chatty, I'll say like, I'm just waiting for a gig. Can you just chat to me for ten minutes while before they come on? Yeah. I'll text someone who I know likes the artist as well as me and I'll say, oh my God, you know, do you want me to film any of it or do you want me to, do you have you seen this person? Yeah, 100%. Like and 
and I found what what my attitude is to solo, to solo boogieing, as I call it, um, <laughs> is why should someone else's ignorance stop me from having fun? Exactly. Like, why yeah. should I have to go to fifty people and say, "Have you heard of this band? No. Can you listen to this band? Okay." chase them on listening to the band okay have you listened to the band yes what did you think um i don't know no what did you think because they've got a gig on um <laughs> i'll let you know okay um can you let me know i'll wait tickets are sold out like that's exactly the process but like going on your own is better than not going at all like if you if you're yeah 100 like and you want to see you not. i think it's a really weird attitude to have is it like oh i couldn't find anyone to go with me so i didn't go like what, what are we talking about they're only on tour once a year you know like you can't just you can't just yeah, you can't just leave it because you couldn't find anybody to go. So, but I, I mean, to be fair, I did have that kind of stigma when, when I was like... Yeah, yeah it's a stigma, mate, 100%. And then after I did it the first couple of times, I was like, actually, this is fine. I went to see the XX in Leon, I remember. And I I, I, I just, no one wanted to come with me, Fred. I was just there on my own in this massive hall. It used to be a slaughterhouse in Leon, like waiting for the XX. And I was just like, oh my, I was texting people at, um, back in London, like, oh, this is really exciting. Like, who are you with? Yeah, I'm on my own. And I was like, it, it doesn't matter. No one else in my circle of friends in Leon wanted to come. So I went on my own and I saw them anyway. It was good. You know, you have to have yeah. that kind of mentality. Um, 100%. And I always find like, like people are like, what, what I always get is, yeah, I'll go see someone who's like absolutely lit, like ridiculous, like one of the best bands I've seen. And I'll post like a video, like a short one. And people are like, oh my God, I look so amazing. I wish I could have come. Yeah. What, well, what redundant saying is that? <laughs> That's the most useless comment that, well, you could ever well, say. It's 30 quid, you know. You could have bought your ticket too. No, anyway. Yeah. Well, not even, yeah. mate, it's not even 30 quid. It's the 30 quid thing I can get, like, you know, 30 quid's a lot of money for a gig. Okay. If I went to see a band for, like, 15 pound and you're, you're, you're messaging me saying, I wish I could have come, like, what, what's, what's that? Well, what's... <laughs> That's the most useless so comment true. you can say. That's so true. But anyway, how, how, um, going back to mental health now, Tim, yeah. how, how do you support friends in your own social group who, who may have mental health issues themselves or, or might be going through a, a poor period in mental health? Um, the, the biggest thing for me definitely is listening. Like you just have to, I've, I know I, I learned that like quite early on in being an adult. You have to just, if they've got something to say that's, you know, about their life, just take five or 10 minutes just to listen to them. And you don't even like, you don't even have to say anything for, for a long while, except just agreeing with them. I find that if someone's like, well, obviously you have to step in at some point, but for the most part, if someone's explaining to you that they're going through a hard time, just sit and let them talk and kind of let them kind of air their emotions and kind of think about things that they say that you have a direct answer to, I think is really important. I think that's something that I learned quite quickly when I went to uni is that that's the, the best way of like getting on in that kind of conversation is just to kind of sit down and, you know, listen and wait for someone to speak a little bit it helps when you work in a call center as well for a bit for it that's what i have to do in that job as well just sit and listen to people um and then i would say um give them an answer give them an answer that's something that yeah it has to be if, if if you're answering give them an answer that's encouraging like obviously like make sure that you you know you that you're being encouraging and nice and kind of uh you know suggesting interesting things but also try and only answer if some if someone asks you a direct question try and only answer it if you feel like you've got a concrete and complete answer don't try and kind of fudge something because you might end up saying the wrong thing does that make sense mm. i think the most important thing is just to sit and let someone talk and kind of because that's what that's part that's some of the majority of that kind of conversation isn't it it's just someone letting off steam it's not that they might not necessarily be asking for advice they might just need someone to kind of 
hear their troubles and kind of for them to relate to it a little bit. I always think, in my circle of friends anyway. Mm. Toxic masculinity is something we, we, we try and break down a lot on this pod, Tim. For you, what does it mean to you? And what examples can you give the listeners about how you've seen it affect your life or people around you? I'm thinking maybe school and university, probably more so. It's, <clears throat> I think it's, to me, it's that kind of inability to inability to admit that you're not feeling great on account of you being a man. It seems so stupid I'm even discuss it, doesn't it? Like it just seems so counterintuitive. The idea that just because of your gender you can you do, you're not allowed to do certain things. Um I think probably at school it was probably worse because I think that you, part of it was to do with like trying to fit in and trying to, you know, seem like you were kind of keeping up appearances and seem cool. But it was definitely like we were more encouraged to have them kind of like low-key conversations about you know, whatever and and the idea of stepping in first and second year of uni as well the idea of sitting down and going actually not feeling great about this or you know i don't feel too happy about this is kind of it seemed really alien until until we got like quite a lot older um mm. i think now i think now it's like i think now you how old am i now 25 like now we have slightly better relationships with people like other boys like the housemates from uni have always been quite close to them like my mates from school as well you, you you know each other so well that like there isn't really that kind of barrier there anymore do you know what I mean like you know when you live with someone for two years you can't really you, there's nothing really you can hide from them anymore and so now and they know now we're in a position now where your friends know when you're when something's wrong um and now I'm, I'm getting better now at kind of just saying oh I had a long day at work or oh this is going wrong for me or you know and I think you, I think it's like what you're saying about your, about your circle of friends. Like you have, you choose that you, you realize who you can speak to about it and who you can't. But at this age, hopefully, most people have a circle of friends where they can have that kind of conversation with. Whereas mm. when they were younger, it's probably we need to do something about this, like long term. Obviously, I haven't got the answers, but like we need to be in a position where that sort of conversation needs to start happening, you know, as early as possible. Ideally, when you're like you know a teenager or something you need to be able to put your hand up and say kind of i'm not really feeling that well what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health do you think tim well i don't have all the answers to be honest i think more we need to i think it's really good to have people in the public eye talking about it for i have to say I think it's something that I've found is that if, if we, we need more people in the public eye talking about it. I'm, and I, I, I don't know how we, you can go about like facilitating that. I don't know if you can just ring up someone and say, oh, would you be happy to post this on Instagram about your mental health and stuff? I understand it's not easy for everybody, but I'm pretty sure that like the more people, the more like respected people that the more, yeah, the more respected people that do this, that, that kind of speak out about it the more like mm. identifiable and sort of accepted it will become. I mean, in terms of in the schools, I can't say I'm an expert, but uh, I, I mean, you, you need to talk about it more at that age, at any level, don't you? You know, it's as simple as that, I think, to an extent. What do you think? Um, it's hard question, it's isn't it? Like, it's you can't just, it you, no one's got I all the answers, have they? Yeah, I always ask this, and no one's got the, all the answers, but for me... I I sometimes having done this for so long I mean it's only three years 
But having done this for so long, sometimes I forget how how much of a base level we still are at when it comes to awareness. From an awareness point of view, there's still such a low level of awareness when it comes to the 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 the, the entire population. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. Tim, thank you so much for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. It's strange.